Freedom Hut. Kamala and Obama lecture America at the DNC. Antifa protesters trash New York City. Steve Bannon arrested on possible fraud charges. And what COVID testing is really like these days? Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. I can speak for three hours without a phone call. Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome, my friends, to the Buck Sexton Show. Oh, I'm so happy that we're pretty much through this DNC week. That's right. We've had to sit through it. I've had to watch it so that you don't have to. And there are some there are some key questions that you're left with after all of this. You have to ask, what exactly do Democrats stand for? We know they hate President Trump. That they've made very clear that Trump is the worst. Trump is a racist. He's destroying the country. He's undermining the Constitution. But, you know, the part of this that I always find so interesting and so instructive is that they say all these things. But then when it comes time to explain why they believe these things that very, very short on substance, very short on facts. They will say, for example, the president is a racist. You're Kamala, who, as I'm watching this speech, it's just a reminder of why even Democrats didn't want to vote for her in the primary. She's somebody who can get appointed to uh, the presidency, in a sense, assuming Joe Biden does step aside, as I think he will, but not somebody that anyone is excited to vote for, who's not a multimillionaire living in Malibu or the Upper West Side or Kalorama in D.C., right? I mean, th- that's where Kamala's base is. Kamala's base are the top hat wearing, monocle clad martini drinkers of the Democrat Party. They think she's great. And Biden is just the guy that has been there the whole time. Biden is the the guy standing in the back of the room when there's nobody else. You go, well, he's been here all along, so maybe we should give him shot but she says stuff kamala says stuff i'm glad people now say her name correctly even biden will see how long that lasts Uh, there's kamala kamala sure we'll hope biden gets it right but uh miss harris of course hammered the point about trump's racism play 16 and let's be clear there is no vaccine for racism We have got to do the work for George Floyd, for Breonna Taylor, for the lives of too many others to name, for our children and for all of us. We've got to do the work to fulfill that promise of equal justice under law. Because here's the thing, none of us are free until all of us are free. So we're at an inflection point. The constant chaos leaves us adrift. The incompetence makes us feel afraid. The callousness makes us feel alone. It's a lot. And here's the thing. We can do better. Uh, We can definitely do better than Biden-Harris. That's for sure. This this was instructive, though, from her speech. This, This was meaningful because you can tell the... Democrat opposition to Trump is, in fact, largely rooted in emotions. 
in feelings, right? And, and this makes perfect sense because one of the great separations between Republicans and Democrats as a general rule is that we try to think about what is and use logic and reason and be rational about decisions that government takes, actions that government engages in. That's what I'm always thinking about with government. It's not about how it makes me feel. It's not, oh, I'm a good person because I do this thing or that thing. Uh, but everything that they say about why to vote for the Democrats right now is rooted in uh, is rooted in an emotional appeal. And the opposition to President Trump is also rooted in an emotional appeal. They are the only policy shortcoming uh, that they will point to is Donald Trump's response to the covid-19 virus. But even with that, it's it's rhetorical. It's Trump said it will go away. I don't like this thing that Trump said about it. What has he really done? He shut down flights from China. He got the ventilators in the early days of the pandemic when everybody was terrified we were going to run out of ventilators. He sent additional funding and resources. He sent hospital ships. What else was the president supposed to do? What, what was the action? What, a, nas- a national mask mandate? I, I will tell you this right now. Uh, we will find out in time that a national mask mandate would have done nothing. And it's not constitutional. Where is the federal government? What are they going to say? You getting sick involves interstate commerce. So under the interstate commerce clause, we're going to tell you that you have to wear a mask, even if you're not sick, to prevent other people from getting sick. If, if that's the position they take, then they can do this during the flu season. They can do whatever they want. And what are the limits of government power at that point? They can lock you in your home and shut down your business and take away your freedom of movement, your freedom of speech, take away your freedom, period. They can do all of those things for a virus that kills 0.03% of people who get it, maybe. Now, that's the real number. They've been saying all along, oh, originally it was going to be 5%. A small fraction of and and remember, it's about known cases that they're always gauging. And there are far more actual cases than we've ever know about. Um, I'll tell you more about my experience with covid testing this week later on today. But I I just want to note that the opposition to Donald Trump is a feeling opposition. It's I don't like the way having a President Trump makes me feel. And if you vote for Democrat, you'll feel better. What's going to happen? What are the Democrats going to do with the power that they have that will keep you and your family safe? The first obligation of the state. Oh, they're going to defund police. That's going to make you feel safer. That's going to make your community better. I don't think so. What are they going to do that's, that makes you more prosperous, that makes you better off financially, socioeconomically? They're going to take money from you and give it to other people. Or they're going to give you some of what they take from other people. That's the promise that they make. That's never going to make you truly uh, prosperous. That's never going to be enough to make all that much of a difference. Is the false promise of Marxism. Make some people a little poor and other people a little less poor and everybody's going to be happy. It doesn't work that way. You still have individual choice with the resources you have. You still have people that make decisions that are long-term focus versus short-term focus. There will always be those who are struggling more financially. We already have a massive safety net in this country. And Democrats say they're going to expand it. But at at what cost? We're heading to twenty seven trillion dollars. If I had told you 
five years ago that the United States was heading toward $30 trillion of debt, you would have said, wow, we're, we're really flirting with true economic disaster. And I'm here to say we are. But what do the Democrats promise? A country where the differences that we have in race become enshrined by legal mechanisms now. We're going to treat people differently based on, we already have been doing this for a while, but even more of that. Treat people differently based upon skin color. As if discriminating on the basis of race will somehow uh, make right previous discrimination on the basis of race. See, this is, a, this is a fallacy. This is illogical, but this is where the Democrats are because it makes them feel good right now. Barack Obama last night gave his speech standing in front of you know, the Constitution. And, and look, I, I will say Obama's skills as a politician are head and shoulders above Kamala and Biden and, and everybody knows it, and Hillary. And we'll get to her in a little bit, too. But for Barack Obama to pretend that he's a defender of and a deep believer in the Constitution is a form of gaslighting in and of itself. It's a slap in the face. Obama refused to abide by the limitations of the Constitution. He had a pen and a phone because he thought he knew better. He thought that he had a, a mandate from within to break constitutional bounds and, and uh, normative behavior for the executive branch. Right? To write laws under the guise of executive action. And courts had to, many times over, slap down Obama's actions from the White House. And the only reason he wasn't able to get those things through the Congress was that his agenda was so far left that the Democrats at that time in Congress weren't willing to go the full distance on climate change, weren't willing yet to go the full distance on amnesty. They did go as far as they could on health care. They wanted single payer, as we said all along, single payer is just Medicare for all. But they created this stepping stone to it. We said that Obamacare was a stepping stone. I said that this was a stepping stone. And of course, we were right. But at the time, oh, that's terrible. It's kind of racist to say that Obama is creating a socialist health care system. Don't be so racist. No, it's just the truth. It's the truth. But here you have a Democrat party that I think is on very weak ground, uh, ground making its case against President Trump. For as long as they hold up governors like Cuomo, who had the most disastrous leadership of the entire COVID pandemic, as long as they hold them up and pretend that they're examples for others to follow, no person who is objective and fair minded can see the Democrat criticisms of Trump during the pandemic and say it's anything other than just the most basic politics. That's what they're doing. This is what the whole, the whole DNC is a rehash of previous criticisms of Trump without being able to look at specific policies. It's all very subjective. Oh, Trump has undermined our norms and pulled us apart. And Trump has pulled us apart. The Democrats are, are stuck in a, in a mass psychosis where their party wants to get rid of cops, wants to undermine our basic physical safety as a society. And they're pretending that the Republicans and Trump are the ones that are causing division. They're, they're pretending that Trump is the reason that we don't we don't all come together and have a have agreements on, on core policy issues for this country going forward. This is absurd. This is insane. This country has in the midst of a pandemic, no less, 
when we should be able to count on the goodwill of our fellow Americans. We should be ha- we, we should be seeing nothing on the news other than people who are stepping up, keeping businesses afloat, helping their neighbor coming together. That's what we should see. Instead, we have the Democrat shock troops breaking windows, stealing merchandise, burning down businesses, punching, kicking, assaulting defenseless people in the streets and screaming epithets and insanity at our police officers in cities across America while violence is skyrocketing in many of them. That's what we see. That's what's actually happening. And it's happening as a direct consequence of false Democrat narratives, notably the narrative of the BLM movement, Black Lives Matter, that cops hunt and murder uh, unarmed black men, which is, as they pose the narrative, a lie. It is an extreme rarity. It's the equivalent of telling somebody you cannot. It is reckless for you to go outside your house because you could be struck by lightning. True, you could be, but I don't think that you live your life around the fear of being struck by lightning. The Democrat Party is telling young black uh, males in this country to be afraid of a lightning strike from the police constantly and in every action they take. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's immoral. It's fear mongering. And it's hurting the country. It's hurting the country. Barack Obama and his administration, which Joe Biden, of course, was the vice president of, were completely inept on economic management. The slowest recovery, the worst, weakest recovery out of a recession since World War II. That's a tough record to argue with. If we had had a candidate with some backbone and a candidate who really understood the problems facing America and not just a wannabe wishy-washy technocrat like Mitt Romney, we might have been able to defeat Obama in his second term just based on that economic record. And let's not forget that while we had the first black president, we also had the rise of the BLM movement and the initial wave of anti-cop insanity that we've now seen the second wave of in the aftermath of George Floyd's killing. And it hasn't gone away. None of this has gone away. In fact, I think it's going to be much worse. You have to remember that as we go in to actually cast our votes in now, what is it? 70 days-ish, 74 days, I think. As we get ready for that, all of the violence that you've seen in recent months, all the destruction, all the mayhem on the streets, is a very clear threat. One that they're hoping you will all heed. One that they're hoping will keep many of you at home so you don't cast a vote for Trump and the Republican Party. Or perhaps will even change your mind because you're scared that somebody may ask, who'd you vote for? And you don't want your business to be targeted. You don't want you don't want to be singled out within your community professionally or otherwise for retribution if Trump is to win. But for me, there's no more clear defining trait of the Democrat Party right now than the the near promise that if their candidate who's a joke and who is an an unserious leader in Joe Biden, and I won't even get into Kamala right now, if that candidate does not win this election, there will be violence, there will be destruction, there will be bloodshed in the streets. The Democrat Party is telling you that every day now. They are making it quite clear that that's going to happen. 
And as I've said before, the only way you can deal with that kind of political terrorism is head on, shields high, do what you know is right. Do not let the Marxist maniacs seize control of this country this election. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. You know who we really need to hear from right now in this pivotal election? An 18-year-old pop star. You don't need me to tell you things are a mess. Donald Trump is destroying our country and everything we care about. We need leaders who will solve problems like climate change and COVID, not deny them. Leaders who will fight against systemic racism and inequality. And that starts by voting for someone who understands how much is at stake. Someone who's building a team that shares our values. It starts with voting against Donald Trump and for Joe Biden. Silence is not an option and we cannot sit this one out. We all have to vote like our lives and the world depend on it because they do. The only way to be certain of the future is to make it ourselves. Please register. Please vote. Why doesn't she say please vote Biden? Because that's what she's saying, right? I always like the Democrats have this thing where they just they, they, they are clearly partisans. But then it's just, well, we just want people to vote. Just just go out and vote. I mean, Donald Trump is Hitler, but just, just go out and vote. You know, I'm not telling you who to vote for. You can vote for the you know, mass murdering, genocidal maniac Donald Trump if you want. Uh, but I just want you to vote. This is what Democrats love to do uh, because they, they've, they've convinced themselves if only if only they can get more people, more low information voters to go out. Well, that may actually be true. So as I say it out loud, I go, well, they, they might have a point. Find people who know nothing about politics or how society works. Find the. Uh, find the takers in society and tell them that they can get more from the makers if only they vote for Joe Biden. Billie Eilish. I mean, some of her songs are pretty catchy. I did actually see her live in concert. It was pretty good. I was it was a festival. It was a festival. I didn't just go to see there was there was Blink 182 there, which actually made me feel kind of old. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so they had their big DNC thing last night, and Kamala Harris accepts her nomination for vice president. We're all supposed to just swoon. Oh, we're supposed to think this is amazing. Fantastic. Here's Kamala. Let's let's take these one by one. Let's analyze together. Let's work through what was said, what it means. And I guess that's what we do here in the Freedom Hut. Play uh, 15. I keep thinking about that 25 year old Indian woman, all of five feet tall, who gave birth to me at Kaiser Hospital in Oakland, California. On that day, she probably could have never imagined that I would be standing before you now and speaking these words. I accept your nomination for vice president of the United States of America. Well, Kamala has an interesting personal his inter- interesting personal story. And uh, see, I'm, I'm not I'm not mean. I'm not a, a huge lib, so I don't try to tear down everything about a person. She's got a nice story. That's fine. Uh, why should this person be vice president for a ticket? Remember, this isn't the normal and I'm starting with the vice president here on purpose. Right? Why should the, this person be the vice president of the United States when we've already been told 
that Biden, Biden has said that he's a one-termer. So what, what are we to make of this? Right? What are we to think of, of that and how it factors into the vice presidential pick? And I would just say that there's nothing about Kamala Harris that makes me think she would be a good president of the United States. I think she's a very interchangeable Democrat politician with a lot of other Democrat politicians, except she is there are the ways that Kamala distinguishes herself. She is truly transactional in nature. And it feels like she'll just she does whatever she needs to do to get whatever she wants. And that's the way that she is. And there's something about her that is just inauthentic. There's something about her that just doesn't really seem to you know, all come together with it. Yeah. It just doesn't. It doesn't connect. That's the word that all the political consultants would probably use. Not the ones that she's paying because they're going to tell her she connects and it's amazing. But but there's a a frostiness, a a sense of fakery that comes from Kamala, the politician, that lack of warmth and connection to the, the people that she wants to represent. That's why she didn't do well the last time around. She didn't do well when she was in, the, in that primary uh, contest at all. It's not like she was the second place finisher and now she's in the VP slot. I, don't, I can't even remember what place she was in, but. And the only way that she had, and this is classic Democrat stuff, the only way that she had a real moment, the only time that she started to break out from the Democrat pack was when she just went, went for the long knife against Biden's reputation. I mean, she just tried to slash and burn Biden on the busing issue, which I, I will tell you, busing is one of those is one of those areas where. People know what they're all, all supposed to say, that if you oppose busing, you're a bad person. The actual research into the issue of busing shows that there were a lot of students and families that absolutely hated it, including a lot of black students and families who did not want to get sent an hour and a half. If someone told me I had to commute an hour and a half to my school or I could walk 10 minutes or, you know, 15 minutes, uh, that's an easy choice for me. All right, but I digress. So Kamala is supposed to get this party excited. And, and I got to tell you, I'm and some of the poll, there are polls that show a lot of things. And I, I do believe that the Republican support for Trump is undercounted in these polls. But I, I, I think this Democrat field or, or rather this Democrat DNC and, and the lineup that they have, I mean, the field of speakers in a sense. It's sure there are people there, you know, 45 percent of of the vote right now that's actually going to show up at election day and maybe it's more like 49 percent probably is they're, they're going to vote for a democrat no matter what so you've really just got to think of this in terms of who is still persuadable and who may you know it's the it's turnout and it's changed minds right who can you get to show up that may not and who can you convince to cast their vote for you that was definitely going to go to the polls anyway, but hasn't yet decided. I, I, I've got to say, for the, for the voters, I would think the voters who uh, would be deciding based upon economic record, I, I don't know anybody who could, who could say with a, straight, with a straight face who knows anything that Joe Biden is a, 
is more knowledgeable about the economy and has a better understanding about how to have successful uh, policies so that we all have more jobs. And the guy knows nothing about this. I mean, Biden is a truly intellectually unimpressive person. Uh, Kamala strikes me as much, much sharper than Biden. I will say that. I think that Kamala is the, the brains of the operation, so to speak. And obviously doesn't also have maybe early stage, early stage dementia. Uh, but they're having all these other Democrats come out to make the case and they view it as, you know, the DNC views this as, as bolstering the message. But I, I think it's great, for example, that they want to pull Hillary Clinton out. Hello! They pull Hillary Clinton out so that we can all hear from her um, because this is the person who was rejected in 2016, who had every, every advantage, everything behind her. And I'm hoping that it will remind voters of why they rejected her. You know, they, they still, the Democrats have this narrative that they didn't really lose. It's the Stacey Abrams syndrome. They, they won even though they lost. And Hillary certainly thinks so. As she said last night, made it clear, still a sore loser. Play clip 10. If Trump is reelected, things will get even worse. That's why we need unity now more than ever. Remember back in 2016 when Trump asked, what do you have to lose? Well, now we know our health care, our jobs, our loved ones our leadership in the world, and even our post office. Vote for honest elections so we, not a foreign adversary, choose our president. Vote for the diverse, hopeful America we saw in last night's roll call. And don't forget, Joe and Kamala can win by three million votes and still lose. Take it from me. So we need numbers overwhelming. So Trump can't sneak or steal his way to victory. What a slimy, underhanded, perfect Clinton moment we have here. I mean, it's, it's not as bad as when the, you know, the, the lady that worked for Epstein was giving me a rub and all that stuff. Because, you know, that photo just came out this week. And I mean, I, I had no idea about Epstein being a creepster. I swear. I swear. That's what he says. I only flew on that plane like. I don't know, a couple of dozen times. Did I say four times? I meant like 40 times or a little less than that, but closer to that. But, you know, I'm, I'm the Clintons. I'll tell you this. I know this from people who have been around them because I, I even have some sources. I have some sources pretty high up in Democrat circles, but they obviously hide their association with me on on you know, fear of their lives. Uh, but the Clintons, there's no way to get time with Hillary or Bill Clinton faster than giving them a free ride on a private jet. They love their private jet travel. Uh, really just the, the Clintons. There's so much that the Clintons did to the Democrat Party that I, I it, it's like the Democrat Party has Clinton PTSD and has never really faced up to it. You know, has never really dealt with that trauma because the Clintons erased any claim that the Democrat Party can have of of when I say erase the claim, they're still going to make the claims. They're going to lie and everything else. But to a, a, an objective, to an honest observer, the Democrat Party debased itself, debased itself from a rule of law perspective by saying it was no problem that Bill Clinton clearly and intentionally lied under oath about a material issue that was that was really meaningful. It's no problem that Bill Clinton, from a moral perspective, uh, tr truly debased the presidency and 
You know, you can't even say the phrase blue dress without everybody going, ah, you know, everyone knows right away. And Democrats completely rallied around him and pretended that they pretended that that was all a witch hunt and that 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 was a hoax, even though it was one of the first great and I say great as in big momentous uh, gaslightings in my lifetime in politics. You know, the problem is not the disgustingly greedy and rapacious Clintons. The problem is the people that have a problem with the Clintons. And Hillary here gives you another taste of what it means to have our politics so polluted, so utterly polluted by their brand, by the Clinton brand, by by making this claim again that that Trump will steal the election, undermining his authority as commander in chief. And they've been doing this from day one, that he didn't really win. And this is the crybaby mentality of the Democrats. This is the delusion that they uh, they feed into. And that they tell themselves so they can sleep well at night. That that Trump didn't actually defeat their handpicked super establishment candidate, that the reality is that Trump, even though they said he cheated, they investigated the cheating and there was no cheating. Hillary's still out there saying, well, he cheated. And the rest of us just say, thank God, Hillary Clinton is not going to be president. Play clip 11. I wish Donald Trump knew how to be a president because America needs a president right now. Throughout this time of crisis, Americans keep going, checking on neighbors, showing up to jobs as first responders, hospitals, grocery stores, nursing homes. Yes, it still takes a village. And we need leaders equal to this moment of sacrifice and service. We need Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Well, she says she wished Donald Trump knew how to be president. I'm happy to tell you that Hillary Clinton's never going to know how it feels to be president. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. They understand that in this democracy, the commander in chief does not use the men and women of our military who are willing to risk everything to protect our nation as political props to deploy against peaceful protesters on our own soil. They understand that political opponents aren't un-American just because they disagree with you. A free press isn't the enemy, but the way we hold officials accountable. That our ability to work together to solve big problems like a pandemic depend on a fidelity to facts and science and logic and not just making stuff up. None of this should be controversial. These shouldn't be Republican principles or Democratic principles. They are American principles. But at this moment, this president and those who enable him have shown they don't believe in these things. Tonight, I'm asking you to believe in Joe and Kamala's ability to lead this country out of these dark times and build it back better. I do not miss having to listen to that guy give speeches all the time. I'll tell you that. That's one thing that is better about the last last four years. That's for sure. A lot of things that are better about the last four years. Uh, but I, I do not miss that. It's, it's so frustrating for me because I hear this stuff at the DNC. I'm watching these speeches and I... I, I know I know it's not helpful. So apologies for for this catharsis that I that I'm going to engage in here. But can you imagine if we hadn't been hit by covid-19? I mean, the Democrats would be 
subjected to all, all they'd be able to come up with is the most laughable anti-Trump Russia and he's a racist. It would be 2016 all over again. I think that you would actually have seen some major uh, some major blue states go red. I really do think that the that the Trump of 2019 would would kick the uh, Biden Harris tickets. But but this pandemic puts look it. Let's be very clear. It puts everything in this kind of hazy, depressed state. And you just don't know. You just don't know. So that's why the messaging battle here is all important. Who's going to get blamed for what we've seen this past year? Uh, this this rejection of science narrative that, that Obama uses. Uh, I, I've got to tell you, uh, what is it that they're saying exactly? Where, where is the science rejected? Is it really just all about mask wearing? Because the president and all the others have endorsed social distancing all along. And I'm, I'm telling you, uh, the, the information that's coming out now on uh, on T-cell immunity combined with antibodies in the population. If you see this now, 20% of the population gets infected in an area, and then the virus recedes dramatically. That's what's happening. And you can run that. Look at the numbers yourself. Run that experiment all over the world. 20% of the population gets infected, and then the numbers recede. That's a pattern. Now, you can say that that's just a coincidence, but the only thing that makes sense based on what's happened in New York and New Jersey and then the rest of the country is that this virus spreads. It's effectively impossible to contain unless you have universal shelter in place, which we, we never even did that. That would be stay home for two weeks. No one goes anywhere. We've never had that. We can't do that. I mean, that would be a true cessation of society. Um, but they keep saying that, that Trump rejects. Trump rejects the science and uh, that he also doesn't believe in American principles. A Democrat party is saying this that has become a party that rejects your right to have the state provide safety and security for you, which is its first obligation. Right. This is what takes us out of a state of nature. Go to Hobbes Leviathan, which everybody in every poli sci class has to read at some point, you know, protecting us from what we would deal with, you know, a life that is uh, nasty, brutish and short. That's the state's obligation. And they're. Un increasingly unwilling Democrats are unwilling to fulfill that obligation because they would rather posture as a kind of pseudo revolutionary movement that believes in a future without police, a future without immigrations and customs enforcement, a future without law enforcement of any kind, except for the deep state fed cops who were trying to take down the Trump administration and threaten Trump's advisors and family members, those cops, I'm sure they'd want to keep. So, you know, they don't want police that protect you from rape, murder and and pillaging at the hands of the looters. They want that to go away, but they still want their political Stasi. The Democrats still want to have that possibility where they can under the under the color of law, under the guise of justice send people with guns after their perceived political enemies. Let's not forget, not only did we have spying on the Trump campaign from Democrats? We also had a rejection of the good faith, peaceful transition of power. Democrats, dozens of them, refused to show up to the inauguration and started saying right away the election was stolen. 
These people are a disgrace, friends. The Democrat Party has become a disgrace. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Operation Legend is the heart of the federal government's response to this upturn in violent crime. Its mission is to save lives, solve crimes, and take violent offenders off the streets before they can claim more victims. Rather than demonizing and defunding our police, we are supporting and strengthening our law enforcement partners at the state and local level. Operation Legend racking up some big prosecution numbers right now, going after using the tools of the federal government, federal law enforcement to go after violent criminals. This should be something that all of America is is on board for, completely supportive of and celebrates. Instead, what we have are Democrats talking about eliminating all police or, or imagining a future without police an absurdity. I mean, a true absurdity. And that's their their position as as widely expressed by many, many different senior Democrat office holders. Uh, it, it's just too much, friends. At, at some point, it has become clear the Democrat Party has had a real break with reality when uh, on the law enforcement issue. And they're there right now and they can't really back out of it. They, they don't have a means of, of making this all go away. Uh, they, they wish they could, but now they're stuck. When I say they, I mean the top of the establishment. You know, Joe Biden doesn't want to have to be the guy who's like, yeah, sure, let's get rid of cops. And so he won't say that. He won't say that. But he also can't call out. He can't quiet down other people from within the Democrat ranks that do want that to happen. And this is this is important. It's worth asking, why would anybody want this? What do what advantage do Democrats see in this? Why do they want to undermine police? And there are multiple answers to it. There are a lot of layers to it. On the one hand, police, because they are instruments of state force, are going to be our targets in our society of the social justice left, because the law is something that the that the left does not yet have full control of. There are aspects of the law Things like murder is bad and will be punished. Rape is bad and will be punished. There are aspects of the law that are still uh, that are still enforced without regard to social justice status, and that there are disparities in in the uh, enforcement of law as a result of that. I'm not saying disparities that are based in bias. There are disparities rooted in the committing of crimes, in the commission of crimes. Uh, for example, no one ever looks at this, but it is very interesting. On a per capita basis, and uh, this is just a way this is a, a way we can have this discussion, I think, where we're allowed without without, you know, media matters trying to get get everybody you know ruined and fired and all that stuff. Although maybe they'll do that anyway. Uh, Asian Americans are per capita far less likely to commit a violent crime than white Americans are. And, and you know, is, isn't that interesting? But there's never a. Uh, there's never a claim made of systemic bias in law enforcement because of that disparity. We never hear we never hear that claim. I've also talked to you about violent crime. Men, right? There's still this gender. There's still this group of people known as men, although I know the Democrats are trying to eliminate that, too. Men are over 90 percent of violent crime perpetrators in this country. It's probably over 95 percent. 
Uh, men are the ones that commit violent crimes. A, a, a true equity-based uh, justice system looks at, not, remember, not a quality-based, an equity-based justice system looks at that and says, well, there must be something wrong here. There must be something wrong. But they're not yet at that place where they'll do it for the genders. They, they haven't yet gone far enough along this pathway they'll do it for genders. But they do do this when it comes to racial issues. They say, look at the numbers, look at the disparity. There must be a problem in the enforcement and not a problem in aggregate conduct. Why, why is it true that Asian Americans are less likely than their white American counterpart, uh, counterparts to commit violent crimes? I don't know. We talk about cultural issues or everything else, but it's true. And yet nobody makes some big political case about it. We just accept that that's what is happening. That is the reality right now. Okay. That's one component of this. That's why police get attacked, because police are the instruments of the state enforcing laws that uh, that liberals view as oppressing certain communities. That's that's one part of it. But there's another part, perhaps even a, a broader philosophical component of this. And it is that liberals uh, recognize and when I, you know, libs, leftists, we really should just say leftists. We need better terms to describe the other side. That's one of our great failings. We don't they package us uh, very unfairly, but power, you know, that they, they do so in a way that is potent. We have all these leftists, socialists, statists. I mean, socialist, I think, is a pretty good one. And that one I like these a lot. Marxist Marxist has a clear anti-American anti-American twang to it, if you will. There's something very, hmm, a Marxist. But we need better terminology for them. Because uh, all they do is just throw isms at us all the time. Racism, sexism, xenophobia is not an ism, but it's the same kind of idea. But one of the reasons that they like the, uh, the approach of defund the police and, and less enforcement of the law is that that's going to create a population that is increasingly frightened and unhappy and if you're a collectivist if you want the mass mobilization to occur of movements that you can then control you want people who are frightened and who are unhappy that's that is the perfect formula for domination of a group of people's psychology if you make them scared and you make them feel like they're they're miserable and you come along and say, I know why you're not. It's not your fault. Your misery is not your fault. And I will fix it because it is these people. It is this other group of people that have made you miserable. This is classic demagoguery. And it's central to the Democrat project. And the police in this analogy are the these people. These people are the reason that you have all these problems, all these social dysfunctions. Now we see it with the law enforcement issue. We also see it with the response to COVID-19. I mean, I'm. I'm I am flabbergasted. There are still so many people trying to make this claim that schools should be closed. That's just nuts. Schools should be open. Colleges should be open. Sports should be played in colleges. President Trump's right when he says this. Play 20. Individuals with underlying conditions, the for older people and individuals with underlying conditions, the China virus is very dangerous. But for university students, the likelihood of severe illness is less than or equal to the risk of a seasonal flu, a seasonal flu. And uh, the seasonal flu happens and comes and it goes and it can be very bad, but people don't talk about it in the same way and they shouldn't. But if you look at that, the odds are less than or equal to 
Instead of saving lives, the decision to close universities could cost lives. It is significantly safer for students to live with other young people than to go home and spread the virus to older Americans. Makes sense. This is all true. This is all reality. And yet Democrats who claim constantly to be the ones listening to science ignore this. What really is the claim here? You have the teachers unions that get a little brazen and start to make demands like they're holding America hostage. I mean, they make that quite clear. And, and then when there's a bit of pushback on it, we all recognize, oh, oh, so they're really just trying to use this moment. The teachers unions want to extract more. They want to pretend they're afraid for their health. And then they want to extract more from the taxpayer and do less work and hurt families, parents, kids all across the country for their own narrow interests. So there's been at least a little bit of a pushback on that. We have seen that teachers unions just exist as jobs programs for adults and really have no interest in assisting uh, in in assisting the situation beyond that. Uh, But a miserable population, they believe, is more susceptible the Democrats believe is more susceptible to being molded and manipulated and vote Democrat. That is the belief that is central to the entire Democrat message right now. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. She went mega viral this week with an ad for her congressional campaign in Baltimore. Here's just a little reminder of what it sounded like. Producer Mark, play it. Do you care about black lives? The people that run Baltimore don't. I can prove it. Walk with me. They don't want you to see this. I'm Kim Klasick. This is Baltimore, the real Baltimore. This is the reality for black people every single day. Crumbling infrastructure, abandoned homes, poverty, and crime. Baltimore has been run by the Democrat Party for 53 years. What is the result of their decades of leadership? Baltimore is one of the top five most dangerous cities in America. Kim Klasik joins us now. Kim, my friend, congratulations on your your viral ad we first want to get an update on how how is your run for congress in baltimore going whose seat are you running for tell us some things yeah well thank you for having me i've I've not seen you in so long it feels like we've both been so busy um but i'm running in maryland's congressional district number seven this is a seat that was held formally by the late congressman cummings um congressman kwaisi mfume won the special election um and so now he holds the seat but i'm hoping to unseat him here on November 3rd. I already won the primary on June 2nd. Uh, we released that ad basically to show people, um, we were we were hoping to at least show people in Baltimore that we truly care about the neglected areas. And for some reason, somehow, it went all over the country. So we're really happy about that. Now, Kim, you, part of the ad, one aspect of it was you just out there truly walking the streets of areas of Baltimore that I've, I've seen as well. I've been in parts of, of East and West Baltimore that, are, are deeply depressing and, and distressing for any American to see the conditions there. Uh, you walked the streets, though, and also spoke to residents. And what I want to know is, you know, we, we played the audio of your ad yesterday about the cops specifically. But when you try to talk to people who live in these parts of Baltimore and you, when you speak to African-Americans and say, what has the Democrat Party done for you? 
what what do they say? I mean, is do they are they are they frustrated or do they really think the Democrat Party is trying but just hasn't had enough time? What are their what are their uh, their feelings on this? Yeah, so I think the feelings are mixed. You know, there's some people that say, you know what, I'm going to vote for you because I understand uh, the Democrats haven't done anything. And then some people, I think, are misinformed. You know, uh, right now, especially what you hear in the mainstream media all the time, the Republican Party is like the party for racists, right? They truly believe that. And so people actually come and they'll talk to me about basically, um, you know, people saying that, okay, well, I think you can make a change, but how can you make a change? And I understand, you know, I have to actually lay out some videos and some plans and, and the platform. But at the same time, people are uh, also saying, you know, definitely we can uh, think about voting for you in the future. You just got to show us what we can do. So right now we have people that are at least interested in hearing us. Um, and I think that's half the battle. And, and are, are you having a lot of people that are coming forward from that, from the community, from Baltimore, who are, are just excited at the idea or, or at least intrigued by the idea of, of a change from what they've seen, because, you know, Baltimore is it's it's like the, the Detroit of the East Coast, meaning it has just been in bad shape for a long time, a lot of crime and a lot of poverty. So, uh, you know, and, and what is your pitch to them when they say, OK, I'm open, I'm open to things being better for us here. Um, but in a, in a in a majority black city like Baltimore and you as a young black woman approaching a lot of voters who have been voting Democrat for a long time. What, what do you tell them you want to try to do for them to make things better? Yeah, so I first talk about the fact that there's a lack of career opportunities in the area. You know, people, and I tell them, hey, look, there are not any careers for, say you graduate from high school and college, whatever, you can't stay in this area. And that's a problem. You know, why not be able to work and still live in the area in which you grew up in? Uh, I talk a lot about, look how we relied on other countries during the lockdown, the coronavirus pandemic. Other countries uh, were basically helping us out uh, with our PPE. You know, Baltimore has the second largest port in the country. Why not bring that billion-dollar medical equipment industry back through the Baltimore port and have some careers? You know, have some opportunities. I talk about school choice. I talk about how bad and poor the education system is here. We've got students that graduate unable to do math, uh, read, write, you know, doing the basics. I said, you know, there are things here we can change and change quickly, um, but, you know, you got to be able to vote for somebody else that has these ideas and will follow through on them. Uh, Kim, you you've had millions and millions of hits on this ad, which it's it's like every political consultant's dream to create a congressional ad for a local for a, for a congre- one congressional race that then goes viral all across the country and get talked about on shows like this one that are heard by people in all in all 50 states. Uh, have you had the president reach out directly yet? I mean, who, who now that you're on the radar in this way? Uh, what, what's what's been what's it been like? Uh, what's happening? Yeah. So, you know, President Trump did tweet uh, the other night and say that, you know, Kim will help us in Baltimore. Um, but I have been talking to uh, in his administration, one of his advisors, his name is Jerron Smith. And believe it or not, we've been speaking since I would say probably around November of last year about things that we can do in the community. You know, back in January, I took some community leaders from Sandtown, Easterwood, uh, some of those neighborhoods that you saw in my videos. We went to the White House to talk to Jerron about possibly doing more with the opportunity zones in West Baltimore. Um, so as far, as far as I know, the administration is going to come back at the end of September and do a walkthrough. And we're going to lay out a plan on what exactly they can do. So, um, you know, they're all for it. I'm excited. Um, I know the president, from what I hear, is excited. Um, I've heard from the RNC. They called to congratulate me about the video. 
Um, and now we're talking about me possibly speaking at the convention. So it's, it's been going pretty well. That would be great. And I think that would be a, certainly a smart move on their behalf. I fully, fully endorse and support for whatever that's worth. Although I do know some of the people involved in that process. So I'll make sure that I try to reach out, Kim. But I, I also want to know, do, do you think there's always this hope? Not, no, no one's expecting that President Trump is going to win the black vote as, as a percentage, you know, that he's going to get a majority of it. But you had a million black Americans in 2016, roughly a million, vote for Donald Trump. If he were even able to get 20, 15 or 20 percent of the black vote, it would be a death blow for the Democrat Party's national level hopes. Is there any is there any ground here you think that can be made up? I mean, you know, you could be a part of this effort that not only I know you got to focus on winning your own congressional race, but at the national level, it seems like voices like yours could have an effect. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something I talked to the RNC about, you know, when they gave me a call. I say, you know, when we walk the streets and we talk to people, the first thing they, I ask them is I say, you know, what would make you vote for a Republican this time around? And they say, you know what, Kim, you're the first Republican I've ever met. And I said, bingo, that's the problem. You know, we've got to be able to get in these communities and stop just writing them off because they're heavily Democratic. You know, they, a lot of people just haven't had another option come their way. You know, so it's like we got to get out in the streets and talk to people. I told the RNC a great place to start would help me uh, with my race in Baltimore. And we can show people, you know, on videos, pictures, whatever. Social media is, you know, it has a force these days. Why not show people in other cities what you can do in their city? You know, not just Baltimore, but a city that might look just like it. Um, the crime and violence is off the case, uh, off the charts. I know you talked about uh, the people in the video talking about defunding the police. Uh, nobody in these neighborhoods that we spoke to want to defund the police. They want more police presence. You know, a lot of the people say, you know, you focus on the bad parts of Baltimore, not the good part. Kim Klasik, everybody running for uh, running for Congress in Baltimore. Kim, thank you so much. Good luck to you. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're working with a number of local authorities to add drop boxes because we've lost faith in the Postal Service because of the sabotage of the president. And so, uh, again, this infrastructure of voter protection has never been more robust. It's shameful that the president tries to make it harder for eligible people to vote, but it's not surprising. And we're not going to tolerate it. This is not going to go away. They're going to stay on this no matter what the president does, no matter what he says. It's just too seductive a narrative for the libs for there to be this. uh, Trump is cheating by destroying the post office storyline. We we can't get around it. We can't uh, we can't deal with it. We can't avoid it in a way that they'll stop. They they're going to continue on with this because. Uh, there's a part of the lib brain right now, I think, that recognizes they've got a weak candidate, a totally uninspiring ticket, top and bottom of the ticket. And going forward, if things start to look a little bit better for the country, and as much as they're trying to suppress it, as much as the Make America Miserable uh, Miserable Again campaign continues for the Democrats, may not be enough. May not be enough. And so they they start to go with these with these narratives. They start to tell us these things um, that we know 
they'll hold on to no matter what the facts actually show because it is psychologically comforting. It's psychologically comforting that Democrats, even if they lose, they'll tell themselves that they that they won. One other point, though, there was a lot of talk about ethics and morality uh, last night at the DNC. A lot of sense that there would be a restoration of those things. Uh, Bernie Sanders uh, senior, I think she's senior spokesperson for him. I don't know. Tied to the Bernie Sanders campaign. Simone Sanders. Wait. Yeah, but obviously no relation. But Simone Sanders. um, Here's what she said. Play 18. We're going to reassert Vice President Biden's position, which is in a Biden administration, uh, his children will not have offices in the West Wing. They will not serve as administration officials. Um, They will uphold a Biden administration will uphold the policies that the Obama Biden administration upheld as it relates to um, really ensuring that we're not crossing lines here. The ethics policy. There was a very high ethics bar in the Obama Biden White House. Ethics. Very important for Democrats. I know before you before you start slapping your belly, slapping your knee, laughing at that one. Let's let's establish something right up front. I I can't. I think that nepotism is is uh, to be discouraged. I think nepotism is a bad thing in politics and I cannot defend the president's nepotism policies. I can't I I don't I don't view them as a huge deal. They're certainly not illegal, um, but I will not defend it. So let's understand it. And, and it would not have been my choice. So I just because it's not it's not possible to say you're opposed to nepotism and see what the president has done. And, you know, we, we talk about principle here. It's not possible to say that that isn't a um, a fail, a failing of the structure within the White House right now, irrespective of how effective the members of his family are in the, in the roles that they have. Doesn't matter. We, there's, nepotism is a principle. You're not supposed to do this. The president has chosen to do this. That's it is what it is. I, I leave it there. I've said it. There we are. OK, now we can talk about the moral failings of Democrats, because it's one thing to say, don't hire a family member to have a very senior job in the government because they're a family. But it's one thing to say that that's you know, it's, it's like in the not great. It's kind of like when Trump tweets something really nasty about an unimportant person. And I'm like, does he have to do that? But then I think, well, most of his tweets are awesome and his policies have been fantastic. And so I'm willing, you know, no one, no one is perfect. And that's, that is a true thing. You, whenever you're trying to assess a politician, you can't hold them to a standard of perfection because then you're just going to go crazy. And also you're going to let people that really should be called out and should be, uh, should be publicly repudiated. You're going to let them get away because, oh, well, you know, no one's perfect. So we're not going to make any distinctions now. That's a very leftist point of view. That moral relativism extended to all aspects of society is a very left wing approach to things. Um, But if we're talking about morality and ethics, let's let's make sure we're all to borrow from Obama. Very clear. Oh, and Simone Sanders is a Biden advisor now, but she had been associated previously with the with the Bernie campaign. Uh, Let's all be very let me be clear, as Obama says, Uh, the. Spying on the Trump campaign. And the usage of the federal government national security apparatus as a weapon, as a as a political weapon against an incoming administration is not only uh, illegal and should see far more legal consequences than we've seen. It's deeply immoral. It's wrong what they did, what the Obama team and with Obama's knowledge and consent did to the incoming Trump administration was 
so unethical that it makes America seem like some third world tin pot dictatorship where the people in power refuse to give it up, even with the expressed will of the people through an election. That is what happened. You want to talk about undermining our institutions, undermining our democracy? There is nothing, absolutely nothing that you can point to in Trump's time in office that comes anywhere near the gravity and the the dangerousness of what Obama and his top people did. Could you, could you all you have to do is think about if when Obama was coming into office, there was a a fake P tape dossier that was being briefed to Obama by and it was opposition research from the RNC and that was being brought to him by the previous by the Bush administration at the Times FBI director. And that it was leaked to CNN and it became a, I mean, the whole thing is such a scam, such a dirty politics scam. The Obama administration was the most corrupt, more corrupt than the Clinton administration, most corrupt administration of my lifetime, because on the issue where it mattered most on that peaceful transition of power, they did everything they could to hobble the incoming Trump team, to settle political scores and to abuse and weaponize the most powerful and therefore most dangerous institutions of our government against his political opponents. Straight up third world dictatorship bullcrap from the Obama team. That's what Russia collusion was. That's what the assault on General Flynn and the FISA warrants against Carter Page and Crossfire Hurricane against Papadopoulos. All of that. All of that was really our worst nightmare as a country almost made real. Right. I mean, they tried but failed. And the nightmare is that the outcoming uh, outgoing rather administration uses the trappings of power to destroy the incoming team and deny the American people the government they deserve because of our free and fair election. The Obama administration not only failed when in office, they left office doing the most disgraceful, the most disgraceful political actions of my lifetime. That's the truth of the ethics and the high moral code of the Obama team. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Because of the solid foundation that we poured in those first three years, the American comeback has begun. In May and June, our economy saw the two largest one-month increases in jobs in American history. We've actually already added more than 9 million jobs back to the American economy. We've added more jobs back to this economy in three months than Joe Biden and Barack Obama added to our economy in eight years. The results speak for themselves, but it's also good to have Mike Pence speak for them, the vice president of the United States. Producer Mark, you know, a little bird tells me that we might actually get a visit from the VP on the show sometime soon. I hope that little bird is correct. Yeah, I'm hearing, I'm hearing a little bird that, that the vice president really likes the Buck Sexton show, thinks the Freedom Hut is uh, fantastic, and he's going to join in to say hi to everybody. I'm, just, I'm hearing rumors. I'm hearing stories out there on the street from the, from the people, because you know, I'm, I'm in touch with the people. 
So uh, on an, on an economic record sense, I've just got to tell you that there is um, <laughs> there's no way that you can look at what what happens in this country when Democrats are in charge and think that it's going to be better for working people, small business owners, just just overall, everybody who has a, a pension, a 401k, everybody who you know owns real estate, uh, the dynamism of the American economy is much better served by the Republican vision. It's not perfect, and uh, we can talk about the imperfections, but the Republican vision of letting the business of the American people be their business, right? By actually allowing our, um, our skill, allowing vision, entrepreneurship to create growth. You know, if you listen to some of the more interesting philosophers, I, I really like this guy, Naval Ravikant, and he talks about this. If you've never listened to his podcast, he's got a lot of really insightful thoughts on how to live your just how to live your life, but also in the business world on technology. He's a well-known Silicon. You know, I just really we should probably have him on the show at some point. His brother, Kamal Ravikant, is a dear friend of mine, and he has been on the show. So some of you have heard Kamal. He's former 10th Mountain bestselling author, uh, also a tech entrepreneur. They're, they're two fascinating brothers. And, and but one thing that Naval uh, Naval talks about, and I think he might have even got into this on the Joe Rogan podcast, which when Joe Rogan going to have me on his podcast, that needs to happen. Joe Rogan does good stuff. I like his show. Uh, but but Kamal, I'm sorry, Naval uh, says that if you look at at how wealth creation actually works, works, you have to think of it as as wealth as opposed to status. There are status games and there are wealth games, he says. Status games are who's in a position of authority over you, who is exalted or who is elevated over someone else. You know, that's politics. That's that's power in, in the government. Wealth creation makes things better and more plentiful for everyone. And it's not zero sum. Status games are zero sum. Naval says uh, wealth creation is something that actually can benefit can benefit everyone. And and a, a, a way to think about this is if you look at the if you look at how much we all have now as a society and you hear these statistics, too, about uh, how everyone has a color TV now and usually a flat panel TV that, you know, the, the TV that you have right now in your living room. I know probably some of you don't have a TV, but the TV you have in your living room, if you had tried to buy it 20 years ago, probably would have cost like seven thousand dollars and would have been considered space age. Right. But it's the TV's now. There's much greater value in the, and the dollars you spend, you're getting much more for it because technology has improved because of the value add of the research and development. And so now everybody's getting better TVs and the companies that make them are, are also continuing to make money and, and stay up with uh, stay up with the market. So but you compare that even more more easily. Think about how much you have now. And wherever you are across the country, around the world, what you have in terms of real material wealth, your health care, your uh, your communications, the quality of your clothing, the quality of your food. And then what a hundred years ago, the wealthiest people in the world would have had. And, you know, you have things that they couldn't really have dreamed of then. And you also have access to. So much more instantaneous communication and travel and, you know, the food that you are eating. Think of it this way. The food that you're eating today is higher quality and often. I mean, look, if you're if you're somebody that likes to go and eat the blooming onion at where do they have the blooming onion producer, Mark? Outback. 
Thank you. I remember reading about that once that that's like the highest the highest calorie meal you could you could get pretty much at. It's like three thousand calories if you eat that. Thing. But it's certainly delicious. Have you had it? Is of it course, who hasn't? Oh, you because it's gluten free. I can't but eat it. So, but yeah, anyone who can it. eat gluten loves it. I, I mean, it probably tastes amazing. Onion, when properly deep fried, salted, and put with some kind of a cream sauce, is a fantastic vegetable. When you when you do that to an onion, good things happen. But anyway. I'm not saying that there wasn't high quality food then, but I'm just saying that your overall wealth and your overall. Oh, yeah. And producer producer Nick points out it's an appetizer. I always love it, too. They can't get real Australians to do any of these. They always get something out of speak Australian, you know, for uh, Foster's Australia. Like that's that guy's not even Australian. They get an American to do a bad Australian accent. You know, I have never heard, and I actually have some Aussie friends. I have never heard an Aussie say, ah, oh, put some shrimp on the barbie, right? I mean, that's, this is our version of it. Uh, and I think Foster's beer is now brewed and made in like New Jersey or something. I, someone has to fact check me on that. That could be wrong, but I, I think it might have like nothing to do with actual Australia. Producer Nick, let me know if that one's true. So, and Producer Mark, what the heck was I talking about? I got all on the Australian thing now. Oh, oh, zero sum wealth. So so he because because this is important. I know I'm, I'm bouncing around, but there, there's a fundamental flaw in the left wing Marxist approach to all this. And that is that they believe that by making you a little less rich, they'll make other people more rich. Right. And this is where the redistribution of wealth idea comes in. The Marxism comes in and that it even even if by taking away, let's say, from a business, by raising a business's taxes so there'll be fewer people who are employed by that business and more expensive and less, less products, more expensive products from that business, that means there's less wealth creation. But they think it's, to borrow from Obama, the right thing to do. That's what they'll tell you, the right thing to do. Well, no, when the government intervenes in that way and is taking from a business and is regulating it making its products less efficient, more costly, less people have access to those goods and services that they want, they're actually destroying wealth. And, and it, take it, even, it take it even further back. You are a, an American living a, a normal, let's say, middle-class lifestyle or you know, working-class lifestyle in this country has a lot of wealth and a lot of things that somebody in the year 1900, who was incredibly rich for the time, would not have had. Right? And that's because we are wealthier as a society. There is greater abundance. There's greater... Now, I'm not talking about spiritual wealth. Obviously, I'm talking about in material terms. Democrats reject, reject the idea that we um, that when someone's doing well, it doesn't have to be at the expense of someone else. That's where the class warfare comes in. That's central to their ideology. That's central to their belief system. And that's why when Pence talks about the record when we're having a discussion about the economics of the Democrat Party versus the Republican Party, it's very important to remember Democrats focus on what can we do to take from some people to give to others. Republicans focus on what can we do so that everybody can have as much as they can get. What can we do for that? And yes, there's a safety net that's in place and, and we're not in a truly... Uh, a, a true free market economy. And there's a lot of, of areas of this where there's some, uh, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. Yup. Foster's has been brewed in Fort Worth, Texas since 2011. Bam. Foster's Australian for not Australian. 
Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Team, we still have a lot of issues at our southern border that we have to address. That's uh, something that you haven't heard as much about in the news. I want to make sure we keep an eye on that. You know we cover it frequently here on the show. And with that in mind, we now bring you Deputy Chief of U.S. Border Patrol, Raul Ortiz. Chief Ortiz, thanks so much for being here. We appreciate it. Hey, thank you for having me, Buck. I appreciate you giving me an opportunity to talk a little bit about what's going on on the south, on the southern border and hopefully the northern, northern border also. Yeah, absolutely. So, so tell me, Chief, what are we seeing right now? Let's just start with the, the nuts and bolts, if you will, of, of securing the border. How are we doing with apprehensions? What do the numbers look like? And how are we doing with seizures of narcotics? Yeah, so with respect to the apprehensions, all right, it's a different population than we were experiencing uh, this past year. Um, just to give you a little background, I've spent the last six and a half years along the southwest border, specifically in South Texas. And so uh, I transitioned up to headquarters about six months ago. And uh, right before I got right after I got here, of course, COVID hit uh, early March. And so what we've been experiencing uh, since that time has really been a change in the population that we're uh, seeing coming across the southwest border specifically. Um, You know, back last year, previously, uh, we were seeing a lot of family units and kids. We're not seeing that same population anymore. About 90% of the people that we see come across the southwest border are single adults, and most of them are from Mexico. Um, Prior to this, we saw a lot of individuals from the Northern Triangle countries, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And then of course we saw family units and unaccompanied children crossing. What we've seen now is predominantly Mexican citizens, single adult males. And it really goes back to almost what we saw when I first started 29 years ago, uh, this economic migrant trying to get to the U.S. in pursuit of a better way of life. And how, is, how has it been for uh, your, your agents at the border when it comes to, to COVID protection? Have you seen a lot of cases and are you dealing with a lot of illegal crossings from Mexico of people who are, are either COVID positive themselves or, or are seeking care for COVID? Yeah, so a little bit of all of that. Uh, unfortunately, uh, in the Border Patrol, we've lost uh, three agents uh, in the line of duty to COVID. Uh, and collectively, CBP has lost over 10 uh, officers. And so that certainly is awfully concerning to our workforce uh, when you think about the threats and the environments we face each and every day. Uh, with respect to the migrant population that's coming across, specifically in between the ports of entry, we've seen an increase of COVID cases, and then we've seen an increase of our own personnel uh, being susceptible to COVID. Uh, at one point, just as you know, these communities along the southwest border started to see an uptick, we started to see an uptick. And so we have done uh, some things to put some, uh, uh, to, to, manif- to, to figure out how to fix that, right? Uh, we've got PPE in place, personnel protective equipment for our agents. And then we've also taken some engineering controls. So to try and mitigate those issues uh, for our frontline agents. And so what we've seen over the last probably two to three weeks is a bit of a plateau of the cases that our agents are experiencing. But certainly it's awfully concerning. Uh, I grew up on the Southwest border. I've got family there. And so we've seen South Texas, uh, El Paso, San Diego, Arizona, those places start to see an uptick in uh, uh, cases amongst the population in the communities. And we certainly don't want 
to add an additional burden on those uh, health resources, those medical facilities that exist there. And so what we've done is we've been able to exercise some CDC authorities. Uh, we call this Title 42. And what we're doing is we're expelling people pretty much right after we apprehend them. And so if you're from Mexico uh, or if you're from Central America, we try and get you back to your home country as quickly as possible, minimizing the risk to our employees as well as to the communities. Speaking to Deputy Chief of U.S. Border Patrol, Raul Ortiz, uh, Chief, uh, have you seen a, a big uptick in rescues that Border Patrol has had to do? Uh, because I know we're in, the, we're in the hot summer months here, and that can be a more dangerous time for people to try to cross, especially if they get, they get caught out in, in open territory and don't bring enough supplies with them, trying to cross illegally, but obviously the humanitarian mission then kicks in. How's that? How's that been going? Yeah, so, you know, fortunately, a lot of the numbers are trending in the right direction. We've had uh, an uptick in rescues. But we've also seen our deaths that uh, uh, people find themselves in distress out in these remote areas. Those numbers have started to go down. And so what we're doing is we're making sure that we have our search and rescue teams out there, especially as you see these extreme heat uh, conditions exist in uh, along the southwest border. In fact, I was just in Yuma, Arizona a few days ago when it was 116 degrees and our agents are out there patrolling 24 seven. So uh, when we get a distress call, and usually it's a 911 call, our agents are pretty quick as along with our Air Marine partners to get out to those individuals and try and put them in a situation where they are no longer in distress. So I think our agents are doing a pretty good job with respect to the number of rescues we've made. Uh, we're gonna continue to try and focus on ensuring our search and rescue teams are in these high risk areas so that way we can respond quickly uh, you know, you asked me earlier about the narcotics, and I do want to uh, talk a little bit about that. One of the things we've seen in between the ports of entry is an uptick in narcotic seizures almost across the board. I think with respect to, to one category, heroin, we haven't seen an awful lot of heroin trafficked in between the ports of entry. But with respect to marijuana, methamphetamines, fentanyl, and cocaine, all of those seizure numbers are up. And so uh, we continue to try and make sure we push our agents in those areas where these cartels and these transnational criminal organizations are trying to do everything they can to get this illicit cargo across. And so uh, when you're dealing with uh, these economic migrants who aren't turning themselves in, but actually trying to get away from our officers each and every day, as well as the narcotics threat, the weapons that are going southbound, money that's going southbound, it's an all hands on deck. We've got uh, a, a tremendous workforce out there that's focused both on the southwest border as well as the northern border. I've got 2,000 agents up on the northern border that are doing a tremendous job. Yeah, for but us. Chief Ortiz, can you tell us what we usually focus on, obviously because of numbers and, and manpower and resources, focus on the fight to secure the southern border and make sure that law and order is is the order of the day down there. What's going on with the northern border mission, given that isn't uh, Canada not allowing traffic from America right now? There are restrictions because of COVID specifically. Yeah, so, you know, both on the southern border and the northern border, we've got uh, uh, restrictions limited to essential travel. And so what that, I think, has forced people to do is to try and cross illegally in between the ports of entry. And this is also occurring on the southern on the northern border. And so uh, we've got a little over 2,000 Border Patrol agents working up there. And the northern border is much larger than the 2,000 miles we face on the southern border. And they don't have the technology, the infrastructure, the wall system, and the access that we have on the southern border. So those agents are stretched very, very thin. But I will tell you that we've seen some successes 
especially in sectors like Swanton sector, Vermont, uh, up in Blaine sector. And we continue to try and increase our footprint as much as we possibly can. And then we work very collaboratively with uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, as well as uh, the Customs Border Service Association. organization up there, agency. Uh, we're doing great partnerships. We communicate with them weekly to ensure that we're sharing information and intelligence on the common threats that we face on both sides of the border. And Chief Ortiz, before that you go, I, I also need an update from you, if you would, please, on the wall, both uh, how it has helped so far, the sections of it that have been built, and where where are we seeing new wall construction? How much of it? I mean, bring bring us up to speed on all things wall at our southern border. Yeah, so so far we've built about 298 miles of border wall uh, along the southwest border. And uh, we've got construction projects going on in South Texas, Arizona. I just mentioned I was in Yuma. We've got several projects going on there. Uh, Tucson, Arizona, San Diego, California, El Paso. And so we've got uh, a tremendous partnership with the Army Corps of Engineers as well as our own organization and certainly getting tremendous support from the administration to ensure that our agents have a wall system. I think that's what a lot of people don't understand because it it isn't just a physical barrier. It's the technology that comes along with it. It's the underground sensors that come along. And then of course the access. Uh, In some areas, you know, there isn't a a patrol road that the agents can drive east or west, laterally on or north and south, depending on where you're at. And so what this wall system will do is give our agents access to the immediate border area to be able to respond as soon as we have an incursion. And so uh, we want to be able to cue. We want to be able to have the situational awareness of what's happening out there. And what we're starting to see as we build between 10 and 11 miles a week is that situational awareness is expanding. And so as we start to see more infrastructure built, we're going to move our agents uh, to where the greatest threat is. And uh, I am very, very pleased with the amount of progress we've made over the last uh, probably year and a half with respect to the wall system. I was around back in 2006 when we built the initial, you know, 670 miles of border wall. And I can tell you that what we're doing now is going to have a tremendous impact on border security leading into the future. Deputy Chief of U.S. Border Patrol, Raul Ortiz. Chief, really appreciate you making the time. Thanks for bringing us all of your insight. Hey, thank you, Buck. Appreciate it. Have a great day. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Big victory in a primary down in Florida for a friend of mine, friend of the show, Anna Paulina Luna. She is running in the 13th Congressional. She's an Air Force veteran. She is down in the uh, Tampa, Florida area, and she joins down to tell us about all the things going on. What's up, Anna? How you doing? Thank you so much for having me back. It's been a transition from, um, I think, being in commentating to now running for office. So it's been a great, great experience. So to tell everybody, I mean, I, I know it's not over yet, but you you have a what, what would have been considered, I guess, an, an improbable primary victory. How did it go down? To tell us about how you got to this point, because you're, you're the Trump supporting candidate in your zone. So what's going on? So basically, long story short, I declared my candidacy in September last year, but it was already a pretty crowded Republican primary. And I think that a lot of people looked at me. They said, you know, she's not from Washington, D.C. She's younger. She was in the military. And, you know, she did the the commentating circuit, but she really doesn't have a shot. And what I really proved is not only does the people do the people in general want non-establishment candidates, 
but really there is the power of hard work and fundraising. And imagine that, right? The American dream is hard work and you become successful. And that's really what this campaign was. I mean, I started with nothing. I mean, I started with one person really on my staff. And today we've raised over $1.1 million on small dollar donations. And that's a huge deal. My average donation is only $20. So as where we were seeing, you know, some other candidates that were funded really by the corporate interest, the corporate PAC money, we were not. And I can tell you that that made all the difference, especially in the general. I was going door to door up until really 6.30 the night of the election. And by 7.30, I was even fully at my election party and I had people calling me saying, you won. Like, there's no way that they can close the gap. You're the winner. And to hear that, to realize that the hard work paid off like that, it was very, 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 a very happy time for me. <laughs> so what what led you to, to get into this this race and what would you want to do? I mean, how are you differentiating? You know, you're down in Florida, a state we talk about a lot because my uh, producer, producer Mark, is just waiting for the opportunity for us to move the show down there. So, you know, we, we may actually be you know, <laughs> we may actually be your constituents at some point if you end up winning this congressional race. We're, we're hearing great things about the Tampa and, uh, and St. Pete area. But uh, t- tell me what you're trying to do with this one, because, you know, you're you're uh, there's a handful of people who are friends of mine and people that I really like and respect who are running in big, you know, you're in a big race. Sean Parnell in Pennsylvania is in a big race. Um, w- what are you trying to accomplish if and when you get into office? So first of all, I really want to break through that messaging that's saying that, you know, there's a stereotype of what it means to be a conservative, a stereotype of what it means to be a Republican. That mindset is dangerous. It's damaging. And ultimately, we have younger women that have really been fed talking points. You know, the squad has really been branded and marketed to be the voice of the younger generation. And that's simply not the case. We know that as conservatives, we are ultimately suppressed through big tech. That's something that I would really like to fight alongside Congressman Matt Gates on is really ensuring that the tech technology monopoly isn't controlling the outcome of our elections for future generations. And I think it takes people who know how to use social media, who are using it to not only run political office, but to get information, the truth out there as to what's happening in our country, even something as simple as news. I think that people really discredited the monopoly that was in the mainstream media. And then when President Trump started his election in 2016, we all realized that there is an insane monopoly that's taking place right now in that media space. And so, I mean, I applaud people like you who are going on the front lines and really fighting it every single day because it's a serious problem. But it's not just that. I think that there's a huge problem with human trafficking. There's a huge issue with the assault on our firearms rights. And, you know, the Second Amendment isn't for hunting. It's not even for personal protection. It's ultimately to empower people over government. And that's really something that we need to make sure that we are defending with every bone in our body, because that's really what makes us a free country in the United States of America. So I have a long list of things that I want to do. But my first course of action will be to really help represent veterans to help fix the disability um, debacle that we have with the VA rating process. And I think that having gone through it myself, having had a husband that was shot in combat, you know, I bring a different perspective. I want to serve. I don't want to be in politics for a long time. I don't want to be here as a career politician, but I do believe that it's my time right now to help serve in the capacity that I can and then um, eventually go back to my private life. Yeah, your husband was a special operations guy. Yeah, and he's actually currently stationed and will be retiring out of McDill Air Force Base. So, Anna, you are facing off against a name that is 
well-known in Florida politics and, and pretty well-known nationally, although I would argue not, not in a good way. <laughs> you're, you're, tell, tell everybody about what comes next here. So for those that might not know who I'm running against, I'm running against Charlie Crist. He is the fundraiser of the DCCC. He was the former Republican governor of Florida, but then he turned into an independent, and now he's a Democrat. And to be honest with you, he is the example of what politics should not be. He's been in office for longer than I've been alive, for 33 years. And he isn't even really fighting for the people that he says he represents, even in the Democrat Party. And I will say that, you know, in politics, one of the great things about being in America is that we can have differences in ideologies. And I will respect you if you fight for your ideologies. But the difference between most people and Charlie Chris is that he's not really fighting for those ideologies. He'll tell you what really you want to hear, but he won't really fight for that. So he has an invested interest and that's in himself. And so, yes, it is an uphill battle. In fact, our goal for this month is to raise over a million dollars, which I think that we will be able to do because again, we are an absolute machine when it comes to fundraising and really going to the people for the help. But, you know, ultimately it's not about just money. It's about going to the community, being relatable, telling your story and generally wanting to make a difference. And people, regardless of party affiliation now, you can see that they don't want the Washington insiders. If you are in politics to serve your own self-interest, you're in it for the wrong reasons. And I'm hoping to bring that messaging back to not just the people of Pinellas County, but to the United States as a whole. Guys. Totally endorsed from the Freedom Hut, Anna Paulina. You should go check it out uh, on on her website. What, where can people go if they want to if they want to get involved and and be a part of the the Paulina Express? <laughs> people can head over to votesanapaulina.com. Please donate. My average donation is twenty dollars, so every dollar counts. And then if you want to find out what I'm thinking and where I'm tracking on national issues, you can head over to any of my social media at Real Anna Paulina. But I'll tell you right now, Twitter does not like me, and I'm the candidate, and they still won't verify me. So. Just keep that in mind. <laughs> All right. Anna, great stuff so far. And uh, let's come back as we're closer to Election Day, because you beating Charlie Crist, which I am really hoping you do, that's going to I mean, you know, between you and I'm sure, you know, Sean Parnell, where he's running against Connor Lamb. These are going to be two congressional elections that if they go our way are going to be shockwaves. Uh, it's going to really momentous election. So we're rooting for you and come back and talk to us soon. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like soft butter on warm toast. Time to spread some freedom coast to coast. It's time for roll call. I didn't mention I got a mulligan here. I didn't mention Steve Bannon's arrest today, and I meant to. I talked about it at the top of the show, so I'm glad I can get it in now. Uh, look, everybody is entitled to presumption of innocence. I've met Bannon a couple times, never really dealt with him. Uh, what, 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 what to say here? What to say? Uh, I think he's a smart guy. I think he's a dynamic fellow. And I think the Southern District of New York may very well be timing this. I would assume, in fact, I'll go beyond May, I would assume the timing of this is meant to cause damage at some level, that the decision was made to cause damage to Trump, although Trump fired him years ago. So this is like a former White House advisor who is allegedly involved in grifting uh, because he has this build the, build the wall nonprofit 
and along with uh, uh, some other people, including a fellow who's an Iraq War veteran who I believe is a triple amputee, and they raised $25 million, something like that, and they, in the, in, in the indictment, remember, Ben has been arrested, you know, in the indictment it says they were funneling money to themselves, and this is, the allegation is of, of a classic scam uh, involving raising money for one purpose under the, under the guise of a nonprofit, and then, you know, living a lavish lifestyle, paying yourself a big salary, and, and using those funds for illicit purposes. Wire fraud involved in the, in the charges here. Uh, you know, wire fraud can carry a 20-year sentence. Now, here's what, I'll, here's, what I'll, here's what I'll say about this. If this is a gray area, which it could be, let, let's assume financial crimes tend to be pretty black and white. You know, uh, let's assume and, and for example, you guys all know, I, I like Dinesh D'Souza a lot. I think he does great work. And he admits that he, he committed a financial crime. It was a traffic ticket worthy financial crime. Very small. But he moved money. He sent money through a, a straw donor to a, a friend in politics. And he was then punished excessively because he's a Republican and the Southern District of New York wanted to make an example of him uh, under the Obama administration. Right. But. He what he did is illegal and he knows that and he's always said that now he's been pardoned. So thankfully, he has all of his rights restored. But financial crimes is kind of you did or you didn't. You know, you know, you either you either hid 10 million dollars in an offshore account and didn't declare it for tax purposes or you, you know, you either did or you didn't. It's not really. a. So the gray area here, as I see it, may be that, you know, what is a legitimate expense? And this is where a lot of the stuff with the tax code, too. It's like, what's a, you know, what's a business trip versus a personal trip? These are gray areas and they're subject to interpretation. And I think that the tie goes to the citizen, so to speak, on this stuff. I think that if it's a close call, it goes to the person, you know, that the government's going after. So we have to look and see what's going on with that. And I'm sure sweeping Bannon into this, most of the really egregious stuff that has been reported uh, you know, buying like luxury yachts and paying all, you know, paying for plastic surgery and all these things. Most of that uh, seems to be involved with one of Bannon's uh, partners in this uh, venture. And I haven't yet seen Bannon um, like he like he's caught red handed on this stuff. That all said, uh, they're they're if they they bring this kind of a charge, they know that it's going to be very, very clearly they got him or they don't the only way that i could see him fighting this in in court would be if it comes into that judgment call zone on certain expenses is this a legitimate expense is it not do i think that there is politicization in this targeting yes i do but i also you know bannon is a savvy player he knows the game and if he did some shady stuff with some of this money you know, guys, it, it would be very unwise. I would hate for that to be the case. And and I I don't know Steve Bannon well enough at all to vouch for his character. I don't I've met him, I think, two or three times, maybe total. Um, I think I mean, I think just twice. I think I met him. So I don't know him well at all. I've spoken to him once, really. Um, uh, this this to me, though is uh is concerning i i the, the southern district it, it's it is possible this is what i would say to you it is possible for there to be a criminal charge like this that is somewhat politically motivated but is still a legitimate critic uh criminal charge you know 
Maybe they want to get you, but if you give them an opening to get you and it's legit, they've got you. So we shall see. He's pleaded not guilty, but that doesn't you always plead not guilty subject to uh, plea bargain negotiation. I mean, if you plead guilty, I don't it's because you already have a deal made. Right. I mean, at this stage, he's just waiting to see. Um, I'm wondering if he's going to fight it all the way. Because I can tell you this, if he does fight a federal wire fraud charge and he loses, uh, he's going to spend some time in prison. He's going to go away for a while. That, that's real. They're not, they're not, that's not a no jail time kind of a thing. They're going to send him away for a while if they, if they can. So he, it's a big roll of the dice for Steve Bannon. But people that are all saying, oh, this ties to Trump. Look, this has nothing to do with Trump. People can work for a president and later on do a bad thing. And it has nothing to do with this White House, nothing to do with this president. And if you're going to say, oh, well, it shows that that uh, and I, I actually think that Bannon was very good for the messaging for the Trump campaign. I wanted more people like Bannon. And I've said this involved in the campaign now. I think the campaign can feel a little sort of Goldman Sachs cookie cuttery sometimes uh, these days. It's gotten better. It's gotten better. But in the beginning of this go around, I wasn't really liking it so much. So we'll see what ends up happening with uh, with Steve Bannon. It's just a shame. I, I hate I hate when one of, you know, I, I look, I don't know Bannon, but I think of him as one of our team. And I hate when one of our team does something that assuming he's guilty and I don't assume that. But let's just for the purpose of conversation, I hate when we give the other team a win like this, a, a stupid win. It wasn't necessary. It's not necessary. You know, shouldn't be done. You know, Bannon, this isn't no one's died over this. It's not some horrible. But, you know, playing games with a with a nonprofit's funding especially on an issue like this. It's just you're giving them the opening and you know the libs will love, love being able to take Bannon down over this. I mean, that that's I can't think of anything that's more exciting to them than that possibility. So we'll have, we'll have to see, my friends. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to talk to some of my friends who know Bannon and see what they think of it. But there's a part of me that wants to yell. No way. Steve Bannon did this. He's good. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right, roll call. Let's do it. Steven, first up, Mark is the glue that holds the show together. Got to say he's probably my favorite Mark on radio. Yeah, Steven, good choice. I got to say, I like your choice, Steven. I think, I think you do. I think he is the best Mark on radio. Producer Mark, take a bow. I am bowing. There we go. He is bowing. Now to the question, Kamala DeVille is a ruthless, cruel person and is a perfect example of the typical Democrat politician. I know most Democrats are decent people with different ideas, but I just can't get to that point with Democrat politicians and bureaucrats. I can't imagine getting my most loathsome coworker fired. And these people are throwing opponents in jail. It's one thing to make some questionable personal choices, but to use your authority to literally literally steal someone's life is depraved. Is there any parody at all where conservatives have lied, cheated and conspired all to bankrupt, ostracize and imprison somebody that they've had political disagreements with? Uh, Stephen, no, I don't think that this is an on both sides thing. You know, if you're talking about corporate corruption, cronyism, chamber of commerce, dictation to uh, politicians, both sides, that Republicans are, are guilty on that stuff, too. If you're talking about being pusillanimous. Emphasis on the first part of the word. Uh, if you're talking about that being a coward. Um, then you're talking about Republicans. A lot of Republican politicians are wimps, are wimps, absolute 
wimps. So, you know, that's we can diagnose this. And, and Democrats, I'll say there, there is a hardliner aspect of their ideology that I almost I almost respect. Right. Democrats don't throw their own under the bus, take care of their soldiers who are wounded on the political battlefield, so to speak. Democrats are very good that way. Republicans stink when it comes to that. We feed our own to the mob sometimes say, please, mob, don't be my friend, mob. And it doesn't work. And the mob's like, that's cool. We'll eat you next. Uh, this is this is because there's an absolutism that comes from a collectivist ideology. It's a it's a complicated psychological profile you'd have to do of the collectivist Democrat mindset. But one aspect of it is that it, it is all run on a, on group emotion and therefore no one person is really responsible for any action. It's what the mob wants. This is why mobs can be so vicious and so violent sometimes because they, they not only are they caught up in the frenzy of the moment, but it's what everybody was doing. The whole group was involved. And you go back and you read during the French Revolution what happened on some of those streets, what happened when they stormed the Bastille, for example. I mean, they actually literally ripped, literally, in the proper usage of that word, which everyone misuses, ripped people apart in the street, tore them limb from limb, ripped them open, guts inside to out. The mob did that. These were... These were fishmongers and bakers and, you know, and craftsmen and ripped human beings apart because the mob became frenzied and no one person had accountability for it. Uh, the the same mentality often applies here. You know, if you look at the deep state cabal against Trump, they took action. Now, they weren't ripping people limb from limb, but they were trying to ruin people to destroy people. But, you know, Sally Yates would say that it wasn't really on her. It was on Comey. Comey would say it wasn't really on him. It was on you know, struck or or page, they would say it was on McCabe, right? No one is ever really responsible for the actions of the of the collectivist of the of the establishment in this case, the deep state against any one individual. So that mentality, I think, is pervasive through Democrat circles where when when a, a prosecutor makes the call, even though it is in one eventually there's one prosecutor that may, but it's always the Southern District of New York decides to go after somebody right they, they they take a a security a false sense of decency and morality from the consensus which is just a for democrats a dressed up version of the mob the consensus is what the mob wants right? that's that's how they think of consensus and as a result they they think that they get there's a power from that and also a lack of accountability from that that i think cannot be avoided i, I don't know if that I hope that was somewhat clear. I hope that made made some sense. We're going deep on it. Wayne. Hey, Buck, I always have to laugh when someone mentions Bill Clinton's legacy. Someone once said his legacy can be summed up as nothing more than sex between the bushes. Keep doing what you're doing. Wayne, I have not heard that one. I have not heard that one. Um, now I get to turn to producer Mark. Of all the shows that I've, I've given you homework to watch, have you checked out? You did watch Fear City, right? Which one was that one? The, the mob one in New York. No, I didn't watch the mob one in New York. I watched the mob one in Montreal. What would you think of that? That was great. Until was season good, two. Yeah, well, season, season two was, was really fine, good. but it wasn't real, which I didn't like. Yeah, no, see, season two, they go off script from what actually had happened, and it's amazing how quickly the whole thing unraveled. Bad yes. Blood was the, was the show. Yes, you yeah. can absolutely tell that it was fake in season two and real in season one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everything in season one rings true when you're watching it. And then season two, you're like, or 
you know, are they going to have Chuck Norris show up and start doing fly kicks? Like, this is absurd. Although, all due respect to Chuck Norris, his fly kicks are never absurd. Yeah, I would have been cool with Chuck Norris, actually. Yeah, that actually would have spruced things up a little bit. All right, more roll call. This one, uh, oh, this one requested anonymity. All right, let's go. Here we see, I just want to let you know that you're one of the reasons I am alive today. I have been struggling with depression for the last half year, and it's gotten worse after I found out my dad cheated on my mom when she had cancer, and then I was cheated on shortly after that. Sometimes the only thing that got me through the day was your podcast. The COVID lockdowns has made my mental situation worse, but I really hope this will all end soon. Thank you, Buck. Shields high. Wow. Uh, first of all, and uh, we'll just refer to you as anonymous because you requested anonymity. Um, it's an, uh, we're, we're humbled that we've been able to be a source of, of strength and comfort for you. And just know that everyone goes through. You don't hear about it. A lot of people don't want to share it. Everyone goes through very tough times. Everyone goes through the darkness at some point in their lives. It's just a question of how open they are uh, when, when you want to know about whether it's happening to somebody. Some people will say, no, no, it's never happened. But I think that really everybody goes through their periods, their darkness. And, and you've been thrown some very uh, difficult challenges. There's no question about that. But uh, Anonymous, I will tell you that it, it will get better. And you, all you all you need to do is take care of of yourself, take care of your relationship with God, and keep pushing forward. Uh, keep your shield high. There are better days ahead, and if this show continues to be a source of comfort for you, it just redoubles the efforts that Mark and Nick and our whole team puts into this. This will always be, my friend, a, a warm welcome for you. This is always a place where you know that you can put your mind at rest. You can join us here. You are welcomed. You are loved as part of our Team Buck family. And you keep your shield high. And thank you so much for writing in. Jim, next up here. You asked if anyone, uh, if anyone believes Jill Biden when she says Joe is constantly on the phone and on the go from 9 a.m. to 11 p.m. I do. He has to because he keeps forgetting who he called, what they said, and what he was doing before the call. Well, Jim, there's no shortage of having fun at joe biden's expense with this stuff so uh, i can see you're getting in on it esther morning buck and producer mark here's where i'm at this morning notice the difference between a biden voter and a trump supporter one is an empty vote the other is a supporter of country and freedom one is looting and rioting the other is celebrating success and living life split the country and pick a side the dems can have creepy joe republicans get trump godspeed you two yeah, I, I look, I would love to have a, a situation where, you know, we could have the the republic of republicanism in this country and and not have to deal with the lib insanity. But I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. John, hey, Buck and producer Mark, I've been listening to you via podcast and on Freedom 91.3 here in Denver for the last several months. Love the show, especially the humor mixed in with the hard facts of what's going on in our country. When asked by Dem friends what I think of the Democratic Convention, I use the following reply. It's a Democratic Party convention. I thought it was some sort of fundraiser to get Joe Biden into a memory care facility. The most hilarious part is they start to explain it isn't a fundraiser before realizing I'm having some fun. John, I'm glad you're having fun. Thanks for listening. Thanks to all of our Denver listeners. Shields high, team. 